pole dancer. Welcome to the evidence-based pole podcast. My name is Rosie Boa. I'm a pole dancer, pole teacher, and personal trainer. And I've started this podcast so that we can learn together, talk with the experts, read the research, and feel better on and off the pole. So if that sounds like something you're interested in doing, let's go. Hello and welcome. I am joined today by Maria Harlambus who you may know as the dance scientist from Instagram. And if you don't know her as a dance scientist from Instagram, you should go give her a follow. Because I, I posted that little rant last week about how if you're not posting citations, you're not doing research and always just mm, real good citation game. So strongly, strongly recommend going and following Maria. Yes. Thank you so much for that intro. And I'm so happy to be here with all of you today. So do you want to start off just telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background? I, I should say you are not, to my knowledge, a pole dancer. No, I am not. Into but I think a lot of what you have to say directly applies to pole dancers. And I think most of us don't really know that A, dance science is a thing, and B, how much we can really gain from learning about it. So yeah, a little bit about yourself, you know, your, your dance life, and then maybe a little bit about dance science. What is this? That sounds made up. Did dance science. Yeah, what, what is this field, right? So I grew up as a very curious dancer. And the questions that I would be asking my teachers, they wouldn't necessarily be like, artistry based, they would be more like biomechanical in nature. You know, I'd be like, why does my right arm feel like this when I lift it up into this position? You know, that's always how my brain thought, even from a really young age. And I didn't really know why until I got into undergrad, I was a dance major at Wayne state university and we had to take Pilates classes and we had to take dance science classes. And all of a sudden, all of these light bulbs starting to go off in my body. And I'm like, why wasn't I learning something like this when I was seven or eight, right? Like, I'm not saying we necessarily need to be teaching them the most complex concepts when they're seven years old, obviously not. But can't they be learning something like even small things, right? Can go a really long way. And so again, all of these light bulbs started going off and I really felt like I finally felt I had the answers to a lot of the questions that I was asking at seven that I could really never get answers to because they were complex questions. And I finally felt like, wow, now I can actually answer those questions for myself. And so I really credit Pilates as the doorway into the dance science world for me, because you know, that really was where everything started for me. And that's when I got certified in Pilates and that kind of led me onto the path of dance science. Yeah. And those of you who are who listen to every episode may remember when we talked with Lauren Kale, I think in episode two, who's an aerial instructor, also Pilates certified. And, you know, that's part of what, what drew her into into exercise science. So very related. And we've talked a little bit on the podcast about exercise science. So what's the difference between exercise science, kinesiology and then dance science? Maybe yes. it seems obvious, but maybe it's not. Yeah. So that's another thing is I was happy that I did an undergrad in dance. And then I ended up doing a master's in exercise science. And I'm really happy I did that because I talk about this all the time that now I feel like I can see the two worlds, like basically separate from one another. And I can see where the strengths are and where the weaknesses are, where one is more ahead and where one is, you know, maybe a little bit late 
progressing and stuff like that. So now I feel like I have a really good handle on it. And basically exercise science is similar to dance science, but dance science is very specific to dancers needs, right? Because dancers have unique movement demands, right? You can't necessarily group them together with a football player, right? They have unique movement demands and they need to be treated and trained as artistic athletes, which is more of a blend between the two. Yeah. I remember, I don't think we mentioned on the podcast before, sorry that I was making a little face, but when I first started getting really interested in the biomechanics of reaching overhead, which is obviously central to poles, central to aerial arts, a lot of the studies on like overhead stuff are all of baseball players. And I was like, this is not the same at all, right? The goals are different. The aims are different. You know, even just like the quality of movement is very different. So it really felt like it, it didn't connect. And it sounds like, I mean, the OSAM overlap between dance and aerial, but dance was having pretty much the same problem. Right. As just not having access to that research. Yeah. Cause you know, you can't really necessarily, like I said, you can't really group them together. There really does need to be a separate category for them. But I think something that's important that we need to make clear in this conversation, because sometimes I get pushed back in some of my comments that people will say, oh, you know, dance science is trying to disrespect the art form or, you know, take out, take out the artistry of dance by basically like narrowing it down to be too analytical, basically. And what I have to try to explain to people is that the whole point of dance science is actually to find a blend between the two, not to just give one up or the other. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, ideally the end goal is, you know, dancers can move better, they can feel better, and also they can have more longevity in their movement. I think that's something that I am now seeing, starting to see more conversation about in the dance space, which unfortunately I don't think it's there for everybody yet. (laughs) And I think there needs to be a lot of work done to sort of bring in that, that evidence so that, you know, we can adjust our practice as teachers and as lovers to to feel better, to have a nicer time. Right. And then something that I say sometimes too, is like, you know, how common is it for a dance educator to read like a 20 page scientific article? Not very likely. So, you know, that's what I'm trying to bring into my posts too, is bringing the science down for people so that they can just, you know, read a few blurbs here and there, and they can learn a lot basically from, you know, instead of having to read a 20 page article, some people like to, and that's great. And that's wonderful, but not everybody can or wants to. Definitely. And even if you you can or want to, right, if you don't have a lot of experience reading scientific literature, it can be really hard to be like, oh, this is the important part of this article and not this bit where they discuss methodology, but I've read 20 studies on this and I know that this is just everyone says the same thing about the methodology because they're all using the same methodology. That's not the important part of the article. The part of the article is where they find, you know, something about hip flexion or whatever in this specific set of movements. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot out of you to read a scientific article. So I realize that not everybody can or wants to. Oh, definitely. So I, like I said, I really appreciate your posts there. You know, it's a little literature of you, right? It's like a little, little snack, little science snack. Go on. (laughs) So something else that I know that you, you've worked in speaking of sort of blending art and science is somatics. And this is something that I've talked a little bit about on Instagram. And I should say it is a field that I am only kind of familiar with specifically for notation, because that was one of my areas in graduate school. I was really interested in notation and specifically how do we capture information about the position of bodies and how do we transmit and save that. But do you want to talk a little bit about somatics? Because I think that that has that same sort of blend of, you know, the artistic elements, but then also having, you know, a more organized, not necessarily organized, analytical approach to it. 
Yeah. So, you know, dance somatics kind of goes against a lot of, in a good way, in my opinion, it goes against a lot of the like traditional modes of teaching. Right. So instead of the teacher, just like basically shouting the information out, one of the things that, that's different is that the teacher is posed as more of like a guide and a facilitator through the dancer's experience. And then with like, you know, generally there's a lot of competition in the classroom, but in a more somatic classroom, there's really not competition. It's more of like a community that's shared and built, right? And it's more of like a lived experience, right? And so something I like to say is, you know, there's really two layers to teaching dancers anatomy. And this is talked about in some of the research studies is that like, First, they have to learn like the basic terms and the basic concepts, but they can't just stop there because, you know, you know, remember dancers are movers and a lot of them are visual learners. So they need to experience it at different perspectives. So then, you know, we go into more of the anatomical explorations as I've heard them being termed before, which again is more of the somatic approach as to really like taking a step back and really moving internally and sensing what the body is doing. So sort of the difference between, you know, just learning the anatomy would be like the written portion of the driver's test and then the, you know, actually driving the car, actually using your body and being like, oh yeah, my bicep is contracting. I can feel that. Or like, oh yeah, you know, I can feel, you know, my arm bones moving as I, as I find the rotation in the wrist. Yeah. And, you know, logically we would think like, oh, the second layer seems too advanced and let's save that for like the college dancers. But actually there's like, there's really simple anatomical explorations that even a seven-year-old can do, you know, there's simple things that can be done. Yeah, definitely. Not that I think there, there are some pole dancing seven-year-olds, I think mainly in Eastern Europe, but also for, you know, those of you who are listening who are like, I'm never going to go to college for anatomy. Like that's, that's not happening. Or like I finished my studies. It's still something that you can fold into your, your dance movement and your training and something that I bring up a lot. And also as, as a personal trainer, something that, you know, it's a big part of the personal training <laughs> training is learning anatomy and, and the biomechanics and, and function of different movement. So also, I, one thing that I really liked that you mentioned about somatics is having that focus on, on the body and your internal experience of the body rather than the outward visual appearance of the body. There's some really interesting attention, research in attention and how what you are focusing on can change the quality of your movement and make things easier or harder and help with motor learning. Maybe I'll do an episode about that at some point. But I think that, especially in the dance side, a lot of that had sort of already been captured in this somatic modality of teaching, as opposed to just like, look at yourself in the mirror, use your, you know, sensory input to change what you're doing with your body, which can be helpful, but probably shouldn't be the only way that you're exploring your movement. Right. So, you know, really the two layers need to just like constantly be feeding into one another. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so we sort of hinted at that there are some differences between adults and children. So, you know, I only teach adults, and actually my my training in pedagogy has only been in adult pedagogy. <laughs> I've never I've never learned how to teach children. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about a little about about the differences between adults and children when it comes to dance science. And if people were interested in learning more specifically about adult movement, where would they look? Okay. So one of the things I want to make clear is I do feel like dance science research is slowly getting more diverse, but at the same time as me saying that, I realize that there's still a lot of work to do and there's still a lot of weaknesses. So, you know, I can have both. I can love dance science because I'm passionate about it and I've built a career about it. And I can also at the same time say there's weaknesses, there's work to be done. You know, there's areas that really needs to improve like right now. Right. So I can kind of have both. 
And I try to be really, really fair when I'm talking about what the weaknesses are, because obviously we know that there are a lot of weaknesses. Now, sometimes this is in the researcher's control and sometimes it's necessarily not within their control. You know, sometimes they only have access to a certain population of dancers or a certain age of dancers, right? And I'm not necessarily excusing the fact that we see, you know, basically just like young dancers in research, but I'm just trying to paint more of a fuller picture that it's not always within the researcher's control. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's obviously a big weakness and it's obviously something that we need to be having conversations like this about because conversations even like this are going to help to pivot. And then, you know, someone learns something, someone hears something here, they go and take it, they teach it to their dancer. You know, it's a little bit of that, like effect. So yeah. Ah, definitely. I'm very convenient, very, not convenient, very familiar with the pitfalls of convenience sampling, which is that it's convenient, but unfortunately it's not usually representative. Those of you who are familiar with psychology may know that there's a lot of discussion going on in that field around weird participants. So that's Western industrialized, educated, are developed countries, right? So basically it's like this, this small group of people who are not representative of all humans who are doing the majority of participation in psychology research. So what does that mean for our understanding of the human mind? And if we are mostly working with children when we're doing dance research, what does that mean for our understanding of dance? There's some holes probably. Again, and we can't necessarily like you know, it's hard when there's not that many studies out there to begin with, you know, it's hard because it's like, what do we pull, pull from when there's really no research? So again, I try to recognize where there are gaps and I really am trying to bring the gaps to the surface so that we can be actively talking about them because people may not even know, you know, what goes into putting together a research study. Like I said, sometimes it's not directly within their control. So do you want to briefly talk us through that process, right? So I'm a, I'm a dance scientist. I'm like, I have this great idea. I want to see what the effects of, you know, adding two Pilates training sessions a week and reducing to, you know, rehearsals are going to have on, let's say, dancers muscle tone and injury over a season. What was the process look like of, you know, designing that study, recruiting participants, doing your analysis and getting it published? So one of the first steps that you want to do is kind of decide what population you're going to be working with, because depending on the age group, you're going to have to be getting certain amount of IRB approval, which is the board of approval for research studies. So, you know, again, like I said, depending on the age group that you're going to be working with, because I think that's kind of like the first step in deciding how you're going to kind of move forward and how you're going to start recruiting. So like, maybe if you're going to use young dancers, particularly, maybe you're going to set up some like parent meetings beforehand, a few months before to start talking with the parents about what it's going to entail. And then once you start the research study, you can decide if you're going to do a qualitative or quantitative or mixed methods. And then you go through and decide how you're going to collect data. If you're going to use any instruments to collect data and stuff like that. And then it's the process of actually putting it together and actually submitting it to a journal. So, you know, the process of doing a research study, it's, it's intense and it's, there's a lot of steps involved. So yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Especially it's generally children are considered a special population by RBs, which means there are more hoops to jump through when you, when you want to work with them. But if you need a big group of dancers for high statistical power, harder to find a bunch of adults in a dance space who also have time to do your, your various interventions and questionnaires, et cetera. Right. 
And that's why I'm just trying to point some people into that direction as well, mm -hmm. that like sometimes they have so much control over some things and sometimes they don't have control over some things. It depends on where they're at. It depends on maybe even the program that they're in, you know, might have some rules that they have to follow. So just keeping that in mind. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, especially thinking about pole dancers and, you know, why maybe there aren't more studies on pole dancers specifically, we're a pretty small population. So I was yeah. talking to a pole dancer from Nebraska recently. Hey, if you're listening, who said that there are only three pole studios in the state of Nebraska. So, you know, if you wanted to work with pole students in Nebraska, you, you would not have that many options. You'd be pretty limited in, in, you know, the size of your population. And it's small enough that, you know, perhaps you're not doing statistical sampling, perhaps you've gotten everyone in the population, which definitely changes your, you know, statistics. Yeah. I mean, you know, within dance science research, a lot of the research is done on ballet and modern dance, mm -hmm. you know, which is, it does kind of suck, you know, because again, that can't really represent all dance styles out there. But again, the flip side of the coin is how many actual, like, like you, like you said, for pole dancing, it's such a small subset of the actual population. I'm not saying it's insignificant, but it does make things hard. Yeah, definitely. Particularly if you're trying to find, you know, a subtle effect, you need a lot of people that you can measure, you know, whatever it is that you're looking at in order to see sufficient evidence that you're like, okay, this wasn't a fluke. This probably is actually a thing. And we can tell like, here's the magnitude of this and the direction of this. I mean, 10 dancers wouldn't be enough in that case. No. no. Yeah. I... And obviously it'll, it'll vary discipline to discipline, but you know, it looks like probably more in the hundreds for a lot of dance science studies, which I mean, pole dancers imagine, are there a hundred people that you know that you could get to fill out a form or to I do? Don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's challenging. It's really challenging. So I, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, I have a science background. I have my PhD, so I am empathetic is the word I was looking Again, for. And I'm not excusing the gap either because I just, the gap is there, whether we want to admit it or not, the gap is there and there are many gaps. Definitely. Yeah, so one of the things you mentioned when you're talking about sort of different study designs, you mentioned quantitative, which I think most people will be familiar with, right? The idea of like the scientist with the, the tape measure and like the clicker and counting things. But then you also mentioned qualitative. So what are some qualitative things that you might look at in a dance science study? And you know, how, I think a lot of folks who, you know, haven't done science can sometimes feel a little bit more uncomfortable with measures like that because they seem perhaps a little bit less robust, a little bit less reliable. So yeah, do you just want to talk about them a little bit and what you might expect if you were reading a study? Yeah. So, you know, qualitative data usually gets a bad rep versus quantitative. You know, people say it's like not the real science and stuff, but you know, there's actually, it's growing in notoriety in my opinion. And, you know, there's a lot of really good research studies out there, even in dance science that are qualitative that I've read. So usually qualitative is more like interview based and, you know, based on like people's questions, people's responses to like open-ended questions is what most of the time is used in qualitative research. And so one example that I've seen is one on like point readiness tests where they actually combined a little bit of both data methods. And one of the things that they did was they had the teacher basically like answer some questions about how they think the dancers improved in point readiness tests, you know, before the program of, I think it was fitness basically and after the program. So, you know, that's an example of how they integrated qualitative study in there. And I think it's a really good idea because again, I think it gave them more of a well-rounded interpretation of the data that they were looking at. Definitely. And I'm, 
I'm thinking of a particular study right now that I think also has on pole dance, it also has some statistical issues that, you know, setting those aside, that was a big questionnaire study and they were like, at the end of the study, they were like, we found these effects. We have no idea why. We didn't ask anybody. Oh well. Oh. <laughs> Which I think A is refreshingly on and I think it can be very tempting to sort of tell a story about what's happening without any evidence that that's actually what's happening. And B, if you don't have that qualitative evidence, you just have less information. And also thinking about, you know, as a teacher, you know, if you've had class with me, you'll know, I ask you all the time how things felt <laughs> because that's what I care about. I, I care about how you feel in a movement and, you know, is it feeling better? Is it feeling worse? Are there sensations that you're experiencing? And those are really hard to quantify, but you know, you're the expert on your body so you can communicate that information and that can be, you know, a perfectly valid object of scientific inquiry. Yeah. You know, I see more quantitative studies in dance science, but now I hope to see a little bit more integration of both. Yeah. I will say, as someone who's yeah. done both, qualitative studies are way harder, which is probably why you don't see as much. <laughs> way more challenging. All right. So um, we've talked a little bit about sort of like dance science as a field. It might be helpful. I'm... It sounds like you are as well. One of those people who has worked in multiple disciplines, which my PhD advisor was not delighted by, but oh well, <laughs> I still did it. Could you give us a little bit of a, a history of dance science as a field and a little bit of understanding of how it came to be and maybe its relationships to other fields? Because I think that that can be really helpful when you're you're trying to engage with a new body of literature to, to learn about. So dance science history basically started in the 1970s. So during that time, dancers' movement demands were increasing. You know, they were kind of like, fast tracking up and over a big mountain with their movement demands. And so, you know, what happened as a result is that dancers injuries were also increasing at a really, really high rate. And so that's when a group of people collected and that's when they basically formed dance science. Those are like the original pioneers of dance science. And, you know, now we're kind of also climbing another hill of dancers movement demands increasing again. And so, you know, this is why dance science continues to need to be brought right to the forefront. We need to be talking about it from day one, not when they're 14 or 15. Yeah. And that, you know, definitely sounds, I think, probably familiar to a lot of folks in poll who have been there for a while because the, I'm trying to remember the exact date of when the first pole dance studio opened. I want to say it was in the nineties in, in Las Vegas. And, you know, at that point, you know, just being able to get upside down was considered, you know, pretty high level. And at this point, with especially with TikTok and Instagram and people seeing really, really challenging advanced movements. I think the, the expectations that dancers have for themselves, pole dancers have for themselves, and also instructors have for their student have also increased. And you've seen, you can see this in like competitions and performances, you really see this sort of increasing demand on, on dancers' bodies. And yeah, I, I don't think we actually have good longitudinal, longitudinal evidence about whether injury rates have increased, but anecdotally, based on my experience, I would say that they have as the things that people are trying to do become more and more inherently dangerous. Right. Because, you know, we're asking our dancers to do way more. Mm -hmm. You know, look at turnout, look at extension. I mean, if it doesn't really matter if you agree with it or not, you know, look at the average like competition solo, right? More acrobatic, more pirouettes, more extension, more flexibility, more turnout, more everything. Everything has been heightened. Yeah. And I think also very similar in, in the pole world. So more demands, also more injuries. What can we do about that, right? Because I don't think we can just convince everybody to try less hard <laughs> and take a big step backwards and you know do less demanding things. And I also don't think we can shift audience expectations, which I think is also a big part of that. But what do we do? Because obviously we don't want folks to be injured. 
So one of the things that I say is even five minutes of an anatomy lesson with your dancers can go a really long way. Obviously there's no evidence on this yet, but I really, really feel like this is a good way to get them into their bodies from a young age because they need to be body aware from a young age so that when the pain starts like, you know, whispering to them basically so that they know, Oh, my body is whispering to me right now. I should stop doing this front développé, right. Instead of ignoring like dancers are notorious for doing right. So again, five minutes can go a long way. Please don't tell me you don't have time for dance science. If you have time for teaching technique, you have time for dance science. <laughs> and with the five minute thing, whatever you're currently working on in class with them, let's say you're trying to improve their pirouettes. Well, guess what? The five minute lesson of anatomy, however you want to poise the lesson for five minutes, it's going to translate into their pirouettes short term. Cause I know people love seeing those results fast and long term, it's going to ripple into their dance education. So five minutes can go a really, really long way. Yeah, definitely. And that's something I've been trying to incorporate into my teaching as well. And in particular, when I'm breaking down a move, I'll be like, okay, so, you know, we need shoulder extension here, right? We need adduction here. We need, you know, knee flexion here, whatever it is that we're working on, breaking it down. Then, you know, in addition to just doing it in the movement, also conditioning for that specific biomechanical demand that we're going to be making. And so, you know, one more thing I want to say about the five minute method thing. When I bring up the five minutes things, people say, oh, so does that mean I just like, you know, the dancers have to sit and listen to a lecture for five minutes. And that's definitely not what I'm saying, because again, dancers are movers, they're visual, they need to be feeling and sensing things. So, you know, there are a lot of dynamic ways that you can build that five minutes without just having them sit there. So that's definitely not what I'm saying. <laughs> about five minutes. <laughs> they don't have to sit and watch, you know, a physio lot, you know, anatomy lecture, you know, they don't have. Yeah, the PowerPoint, get over those. <laughs> do, do folks still use like the overhead with the transparency? You know I, think, wait, I think those are out now. <sighs> I think it's all like the little board, the smart boards and the whiteboards and the- <laughs> Oh, I feel so old. Those are slowly getting out, but I could be wrong. <sighs> End of an era, but you don't need to bring those out regardless, even if maybe they don't make them anymore. <laughs> all right, so. Thinking and then you were about, some conditioning also. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So thinking about it, I would be like breaking down, like, here's what's happening. Something that I like to do, which I think is, you know, again, I only work with adults is I'll be like, okay, this is the movement we're doing. This is the, the muscles we're trying to engage. Let's do this off the pole and feel, oh yeah, you know, if I, if I squeeze my fist, I can feel the muscle in my forearms sort of being involved with that, you know, or if I, I'm trying to come up with another really good example right here. <laughs> if I try to lift my, my, the ball of my foot off the ground, oh yeah, I can feel the muscles on the front of my shin turning on to help that movement and then bringing that, okay, this muscle here controls this movement there, even if it's not, you know, it is not the, the foot itself that moves the shin, if that makes sense. Right. So basically that's like an anatomy exploration, in my opinion, because you're getting them to translate and sense it and feel it. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the history of the field. We've talked a little bit about, you know, maybe some, some areas for, for further study, especially in, in non-children populations, it sounds like, especially in movement disciplines outside of ballet and modern, and then also some of the challenges there. So, you know, population size, convenient sampling. What are some of the, the maybe surprising or counterintuitive findings from dance science? 
one of the things that I have on here is the big thing with static stretching, you know, when static stretching used to be a big thing, you know, I mean, even when I was training, we would walk into class and we would basically just drop right into our splits. Right. And that was how we thought warming up was. And now there's this whole new wave of, you know, the dynamic warmups and the neurological warmups and the neuromuscular warmups that obviously take the body through like a sequence of things instead of just dropping down into your right splits. So, you know, that's one of the outdated teaching traditions that I would say I, I still do see some of, but I think that's one that we're doing pretty good on is teaching about good warmups. Oh. Yeah. Are there any other, any other surprising findings like that that folks might not be, might not be familiar with? So one of them that people probably won't be surprised by, but it's just like the genuine, the general, I should say, push culture, mm-hmm. like the push, 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 even when you feel like something's not right. Right. You have those like warning signals going on. Like the something is like whispering to me, something, a light bulb is going off, but no push, 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 push. And then what happens six months down the road, you end up with an injury. Yes. The push culture, you know, the whole wave around the negative wave around injuries and dance is a really hard one. Yeah. 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 Dance science is really trying to bring more positive light to, you know, basically injury prevention from a young age. Yeah. And I, again, something we very much see in, in the pole world, particularly since I think a lot of pole dancers will sort of tie their sense of worth as a pole dancer to, okay, I can do these specific movements, or I'm working on this and I'm going to achieve it in this time frame, and really trying to hit specific shapes without necessarily, and you know, some places are great about this, some places are not so great, being supported in building the physical capacity to do that safely, being supported in, you know, taking a long-term view of their of their movement and their movement life, right? You know, I, I build my curriculum in sort of like month long chunks and we work on the same thing for a month, but like, I don't expect everybody to necessarily have to get that thing at the end of the month. And obviously adults and children are different. Like some of my dancers compete, but that's not the main focus of the studio at all by by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I do see it. I see it a lot. And I see dancers really pushing themselves to and past the point of injury in a way that's very harmful. Uh, Nikita from Fit and Bendy, for those of you who are familiar with, with contortion, has had a really, I think, honest, what's the, what's what I'm looking for here? Frank conversation about how her contortion career and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing when she was performing means that now she is having to undergo, you know, surgery for her ankle and her foot. And she's having to really work to regain sort of just the baseline of where she wants to be, let alone continue to train and continue to to gain new skills. So, and it's hard. It's hard, especially with adults, because it's like, I have to I don't have to. This is not necessarily my job as, as a teacher to change your motivations. I don't think that's super healthy to try and do either. But if you're listening and you're like, but I have to keep working in my Aisha, even though my elbow hurts, you don't. You don't. That is that is an external expectation that you have internalized. And your worth as a dancer is not the specific set of movements that you can do. And the sooner you can sort of decouple that, the happier you will be. But it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, they're humans first before dancers, but you know, in the, if we kind of put ourselves into the brain of a young dancer, we have to remember that they think basically in tight boxes, you know, it's hard for them to see long-term and it's hard for them to really imagine 
what they're going to feel like, you know, 40 or 50 years from now. And again, that's why it's important for us as the educators and coaches and trainers to be constantly teaching this to them and trying to get them to understand, you know, this is your, the rest of your life. This is not just a pirouette in six weeks, or this is not just a day pay in six weeks. This is your life as a human being. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, a good litmus test for, for everyone who's a mover is, is what your movement doing negatively affecting the rest of your life? Because if it is, something needs to change. Something has gone wrong. You've, you know, you deserve better and you can have better. And there, you know, there are much safer ways to be doing things now. You know, you don't have to push yourself to that limit. Yeah. So we talked about push culture. We talked about static stretching and how, you know, We've had a lot of really good evidence from a lot of different disciplines at this point that that really increases your risk of injury. But what are some other sort of persistent myths in, in the dance world and the dance science world? One of the other like myths that I come across is like people not believing in non-dance cross training. So people thinking that all of their cross training has to look exactly like their dance movements. And it's actually the opposite. We want to be balancing out the body as much as we possibly can. So if you're trying to improve your front développé, and if you're going home and doing the front développé a hundred times and nothing else, you're probably going to end up getting an overuse injury. Okay. Again, we need to be balancing the body with non-dance things that are going to support their technique and performance, even if it doesn't look like dance. Yeah, that is a really great point. Yeah. And, you know, also, like I mentioned, I'm a personal trainer in to a pole dance teacher. And something that I think about a lot is pole dancers get a lot of pulling movement, right? So easy to get, you know, more than your daily, you know, allotment of pulling in pole, but pushing, we're not so good about and lower body, we're not so good about. So when I'm putting together my off pole conditioning, I do a lot of body weight and calisthenic stuff, which is a really nice fit for pole because it's a lot of pushing to help to balance out those muscles. And you know, a, one way that that can be really helpful that may not be you know obvious at first is that a lot of dancers, pole dancers specifically, really round, really struggle with rounding their shoulders forward. And part of that is general movement habits, but also part of that is often very tight lats because you're not balancing out with the chest work. Um, so bringing in more chest strengthening, it may seem counterintuitive, but can help you find more broadness and more stability in your shoulders in general. Right. Because logically we would think more of the same thing is better, but in this case it's not because as human, as human beings, again, we need balance. Absolutely. We're striving for balance. Absolutely. Cause you, you know, if you even think about standing up straight, a lot of things are pulling against each other for that to be able to happen. And if you're only doing half those things, you're going to have a hard time finding, you know, even just posture, even just being able to walk around in the world and, you know, stand for a while is going to start being more challenging than it needs to be. And again, if you're sticking with just like only dance specific movements, you're definitely not going to see a different, you know, in six weeks, you're not going to see that you're not going to feel like you haven't balanced yourself out. What I'm saying is over time, you will feel things still stuff will start to happen over time. Yes, absolutely. Right. Fabulous. So I don't want to keep you too long because I know you are also busy, but a couple things that people might be interested to hear about you, obviously Instagram, really fabulous. Check it out. But you also have a podcast, right? I do. It's called the Dance Science Podcast, and you can currently listen to it on all platforms. It's just audio only, though. 
that's fine. <laughs> For those of you who only listen on Spotify, this podcast is also on, on YouTube. You can see what we look like. Maria's makeup, yeah. on point. Oh. <laughs> it looks really good. Great, and then where else can people find out about you? Maybe if they wanna train with you. I don't know if you're taking on, taking on students or, or clients right now, but just general, how can people work with you? Yep. So like my main things, I have master classes. I have mentoring where I help people, like if they're taking an upcoming Pilates exam or if they want help with like lesson planning for their dancers, I have mentoring sessions. And then basically my products are categorized into three tiers because not everybody can spend the same amount of money and time on learning about dance science. So I have eBooks, which is at the bottom, just PDFs that you can purchase from my website. I have mini courses, which are just one or two hours. And then I have full courses, which are between five and six hours. And all of this can be found directly on my Instagram. I make it super easy for people. And what would your website be if people wanted to check it out? Yep. It's just the dancescientist.net. And I will do my best to put those in the show description. And if I forget people, please yell at me, but I'll probably remember. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Maria. I think this has been really, really interesting for me. I hope also for, for everyone listening, probably. I know y'all are nerds. <laughs> We're all nerds here. And I'm definitely going to keep following you on Instagram. And you know, other folks, also give her a follow. And I will talk to everyone else soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much for joining you today, Pole Dancer. This podcast is a production of Slink Through Strength, the inclusive evidence-based online pole studio. So if you're looking for a place to train, either off pole conditioning and flexibility, or learning pole tricks and refining your pole movement, you can find us online at slinkthroughstrength.com.